If you're wondering what that was, that is a new uh, resource we have available to you. Uh, we have a new app uh, that help you stay communicated, uh, stay up to date with communications. In fact, this week, uh, Travis Beckner sent me a t-shirt he said that I need. Uh, and on the, the front of the t-shirt just said, it's in the bulletin. And then underneath it says, it's been there for weeks, right? And if you've been in any church work, you know that you've communicated something like 19 times. Uh, you've got about 30 more to go for people to get it. And so we're always looking for new ways to communicate and keep you updated. And um, in this app, you, you, if you're a member, you have access to a directory where you can see people's names and faces and uh, ways to get a hold of them. And, and you get updated on, on all sorts of things coming up, step to date on, on podcasts and sermons and all kinds of things. And so uh, that is your, that's, a, that's your resource uh, that we have provided for you. Uh, Kara has done some tremendous work in the office building that for you. Um, and so please take advantage of that. Download that on your phones. If you don't know how to do that, um, then you can talk to whoever made that video. I couldn't tell who'd made it. Uh, maybe you guys could guess it for me. Um, but we can help download it for you. Uh, just bring us your phones and we'll put it on there for you. Like we'll literally just we'll hold your hand through this if you need it. Uh, because we want you to stay connected. And so that's a resource available to you. Uh, please take advantage of it. I'd like to welcome you and ask you to get your Bibles open to 2 Timothy chapter 4. If you do not have a Bible, there is a black one in the seat back in front of you. If you get to page 1056, uh, you're going to be right there with us in 2 Timothy 4 because we want you to be able to follow along and make sure that what we're talking about today is in our opinion, which is ultimately irrelevant, uh, but it's, it's truth coming from the timeless eternal Word of God. And we're grateful you're here. If you're a guest, we are so thankful uh, that you're here with us today, and hopefully that uh, you can stop by the welcome desk on your way out and get a gift uh, for being here. Uh, we know it's not easy to try something new, and so please uh, feel our, our, uh, our welcome this morning and our, our excitement that you're here. And I'm going to ask all of you, uh, both of you who are here in this room and all of you join us online, to join me in a word of prayer as we, as we start this today. God, we're, we're, we're grateful. We're grateful for the opportunity and privilege it is to gather as your church this morning. Uh, we're grateful for the chance we've already had to worship you, uh, to, to fellowship with one another, uh, to spend some time together. Now as we come to your word, we just pray that you would just shove all uh, the distractions, all the burdens, all the heaviness and weariness of life out of the way. Uh, and would you just speak clearly this morning? Um, God, push me out of the way. Uh, just, just, just take over this room now. And uh, we pray that your word would not return to your void, but it would accomplish uh, the very things that you've set forth for it to accomplish this morning, that you'd get the glory from all of it. And we ask this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Well, the Augusta National Golf Club is located in Augusta, Georgia, and it is one of the most private, exclusive golf clubs in existence, right? This, uh, the people in it are the snobbiest, uh, stuffiest, richest, most elitist group that you could find. Uh, their track record on inclusivity is terrible. Um, they're just not good people. And man, I really, really want to go there, right? <laughs> and the reason why is because that golf course is one of the most beautiful places on the planet, okay? And every April, uh, it hosts the Masters Tournament. And this week is starting to become my wife's least favorite week of the year because all four days I'll have it on. And I'll just keep saying the same thing to her. Just, Corinne, look at that golf course, just look at that grass. Corinne, look at that, those flowers. And she's finally like, yeah, you've been pointing it out for days, right? It's a pretty place. I get it, okay? But not only that, it's the only major tournament where, where uh, the golfers come back to the same course every single year. And so it's just soaked in history and tradition. Every hole that I watch, I can remember shots from years past that great players hit before it. And so as, as, as golf tournaments go, it's become this larger-than-life event. Like, it's the big granddaddy of them all. And this past April, going into the last round, there's a young man by the name of Scotty Scheffler who had the lead. 
And he was at the time, and still is today, the number one ranked player in the world, but he had just become that. All of his success had been recent, and so he'd never won a major tournament. He'd never won this tournament, right? And this was different than all of them. So the night before, he got incredibly nervous and stressed out to the point where he was getting physically ill. And he would say of this later, he'd say, you begin to believe that it's just way more important than it really is. You just get sucked into all the hype around you, and you begin to think that this is the most important thing in the world. And Scheffler did not like what this was doing to him. Uh, he's also, by his own profession, a follower of Jesus. And so one of the things he did is he wrote a note to himself that he was going to take out of his bag and look at throughout, periodically throughout the final round. And the note basically said this. It said, winning this golf tournament will change nothing about who you are. And so whenever he felt like it was, the hype was getting too big, he'd pull that note out and read it. Winning this golf tournament will change nothing about who you are. And he said he wanted to remind himself that all of this was temporary and that there were things that mattered far more important than what he was doing that day. See, all of us strive to win prizes, get promotions, get to the next grade, graduate, achieve success, go to the next level. We compete, we train, we, we learn, we improve, and none of that is wrong. In fact, all of it's mostly good. So long as we are constantly reminding ourselves of what Scheffler did, that there is something greater. There is a greater good, and we need to ensure that what is great isn't drowned out by our pursuit of what is good. As far as Jesus, we must strive to make sure that what is great is never drowned out by our pursuit of those things that are good. And I know that regardless of personality, regardless of age or lifestyle or energy, there is pursuit in your life this morning. There's something that you're chasing. And the reason that I know this is because you're still getting out of bed. You're finding a way to fill 24 hours every day. So there's something that you're invested in. There's something that's interesting to you. There's something that you're passionate about. And in today's passage, in 2 Timothy 4, we're going to read again the thoughts of a man who knows he's about to die. And we're going to see here in his language, we're going to see the freedom of knowing that he pursued that which mattered most in this life. And because of that, he has confidence that there is a prize awaiting him that could never be taken away. I told you last week as we come to these last few sermons in 2 Timothy, right, as we go through this last chapter, that, that for these closing messages, my prayer for this time has been that you would be given the opportunity to be compelled by the Lord just to pause, just to slow down long enough, at least on Sunday mornings, but also in your group discussions throughout the week and conversations with others, to just think and reflect and start asking some really good questions. Today, what I want you to ask yourself is this, am I pursuing what matters most in life? Or in my pursuit of that which are really good things, have I missed out on what is best? So to help us frame this topic or this conversation, I'm going to invite Lisa Telly up to read today's passage for us. She's going to be reading for us 2 Timothy chapter 4, uh, verses 6 through 8. And if you are physically capable, would you please stand with her to honor the reading of God's word this morning? Morning, Lisa. Good morning. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have, found, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Thank you. Thank you, Lisa. You guys have a seat. Keep your Bibles open there to 2 Timothy 
uh, chapter 4. If you were here last week, we started there in verse 6, that in this closing section of the letter, what has been foreshadowed the entire letter, what we've been referencing through as we've studied it, becomes increasingly clear because Paul just writes it outright for Timothy, that he knows he's about to die. And so last week we looked at verses 6 and 7 where, where he tells him that not only is he about to die, but his conscience is clean because he's done what God has asked him to do. Right? He's fought the good fight. He's kept the faith. He's finished his race. He's been faithful to his calling. And, and so last week, verses 6 and 7 were all about him looking back at what has led to this moment. And today we're going to zero in on verse 8, which is all about looking ahead. Okay? Now he's, his, his gaze has moved forward. And the first thing that we see here is that there is a crown that has been reserved for Paul. And I think that the reality that, that, that Paul is facing death kind of helps shape our understanding of this letter. At least to me, it's, it's really meaningful to me that instead of whining or moping or being depressed or kind of having this victim mentality, Paul is still actively doing everything he can for others. Right? Every time he was in prison, he, he wrote letters to churches and individuals that he had either planted or invested in, and he oh, was still teaching, still praying. The book of Acts tells us when he's in prison, he's still witnessing to anyone who comes around him. He was actively engaging in serving the Lord. And I think one of the reasons that he was still able to joyfully serve God when he was about to be killed for serving God is a strategy and a mindset that Paul had used before, and he's using it here in verse 8. And that strategy is to look ahead, to focus on what lay before him. And I'm not talking about the imprisonment and execution. I mean beyond that. He uses this strategy a lot in the book of uh, Philippians when he writes to the church of Philippi. In chapter 1, he says, For me to live is Christ." But to die is gain. To die is actually better, right? In Philippians chapter 3, he says, One thing I do, forgetting what is behind. He's leaving the past in the past, right? And straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal, press on toward the goal to win the prize which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Later in the same chapter, in verse 20, he reminds the church there that our citizenship, our home is in heaven. That's where we belong. We're just here temporarily. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Paul knew what the Lord Jesus had made possible for him. He knew what lay ahead for all of us who are in Jesus. That because of Jesus' death, our sins can be paid for. And because of his resurrection, eternal life in heaven can be ours. And these major, eternity-changing truths are, are, are available to us if we place our faith and trust in Jesus. And Paul had done that. He trusted, he believed, he put all his faith in Jesus, and he knew what Jesus had done for him, and he knew most importantly what Jesus would still do for him, and that freed him up to continue to serve him regardless of the circumstances of his life. He could press on through any kind of suffering. He could press on through setback. He could press on through doubt and confusion and worry. He could press on through criticism and rejection and pain and loss because his focus remained on what was still to come. And here in verse 8, he describes it as this. He refers to it as a crown of righteousness. And he says that it's been reserved for him. The language there means that it's been laid away. It's, it's an appointment with his name on it waiting for him. Now, there's some debate as exactly what the meaning of this crown is. And there's basically two camps, right? Some say that, that uh, this means that righteousness itself is the crown. And others think that the crown is some sort of heavenly reward for righteousness displayed while Paul was alive here on this earth. I happen to fall in the first camp. Right? Because in this life, we're always going to have our sinful nature. We will always be at war with our sinful tendencies and struggles. But in heaven, we are going to wear righteousness as a crown. Joys in heaven, there's not going to be a single inkling or temptation in us towards sin. 
Do you know how wonderful that sounds? How freeing and relieving that will be? And I get why we would like the idea that we can earn rewards. And there certainly are scriptures in the New Testament that indicate such a concept. But I think to focus exclusively on that misses out on the immense reward and prize that we have in Jesus Christ. And that one comes to us entirely by grace. To be given life, to be given life eternal and life to the fullness, to be made whole and complete and to be at rest and at peace and to be with our Savior who made it all possible, there is no prize worth comparing to that. There isn't. And that prize comes exclusively to us by grace, by the efforts and works of Jesus and not us. And that's why it can be reserved and guaranteed for us. That's why Paul says it's reserved. It's waiting on me. Because he, has this, he picks up this concept in 2 Corinthians 1. He says, Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and listen to this, put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Same idea in chapter 5. The one who fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. That's Paul saying, if you're in Jesus Christ, the, reason, the Holy Spirit in you is serving as a deposit, guaranteeing this eternal life to come. That's the crown of life. That's the crown of righteousness that's awaiting Paul. And he could trust the one who was going to reward it to him. And the reason why is it's what he says in verse 8. is because Jesus Christ is a righteous judge. He's righteous. Now, if you know Paul's story, you know that he faced much persecution and has stood before many judges in his life. Almost all of them that we read of in the book of Acts aren't good judges and they aren't fair judges. In fact, if you read through the book of Acts, all of them acted in their own self-interest and their own political gain. They weren't concerned with fairness. They weren't concerned with righteousness. They weren't concerned with, with equality. They weren't concerned with anything. whether they ruled in favor of Paul or against him had little to do with his innocence or guilt or the facts of the case. It was always what was best for the judge or what was best for the ruler deciding the case. Because that's who the human judges that he stood before were. But when he writes this letter, there's a day coming for Paul, and it's coming soon, in which he would stand before not just a judge, but the judge of the entire universe. Hebrews 9 tells us that people are destined to die once and after that to face the judgment. And in John, we find out who that is. The Father, Jesus says, in fact, judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. That's Jesus. So that all people may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. That judge, Jesus Christ, is the fullness of righteousness. And Paul's going to stand before him, and here's what he knows. He will not be unfair to Paul. In fact, he's not going to be unfair to anybody. He's going to rule with complete righteousness, which means for us, it's going to go one of two ways. For those of us who are outside of Jesus Christ, who have never believed in him, he's going to be totally and completely fair and just to us because our sin deserves payment. We are guilty before a holy God. And if our sins have not been covered and paid for, then the fair and just and righteous thing will be for us to pay the price for those sins for all eternity in hell. And for those of us who are in Jesus Christ, who have believed in him and trusted him, he will be totally and completely fair and just, not to us, but to his standard of righteousness. Because sin deserves payment. And we are all guilty before a holy God, but if we believed in Jesus Christ, it is his brutal suffering and torment and death that will be counted as the just punishment for our sins. And so to those in Christ, we will experience his just fairness as unspeakable graciousness and mercy. Either way, sin must be paid for, and so it will be. 
And Paul had faced judge after judge after judge who was unfair and looked out for themselves, and he knew that the last one he would face would be different. Because Jesus rules with fairness. He rules with righteousness. He rules with holiness. And he put himself last in order to pay our price. And so all who have been saved and forgiven and freed and redeemed by Christ are ready. They are ready to stand before his judgment seat. And when you're ready to face the Lord, there's no need to fear the judgment of man. That is why more than 71 million brothers and sisters in Christ have followed Jesus all the way to martyrdom. They have given up their lives for this faith because their king and their judge and their savior gave up his life for them and rose from the dead. And so they're going to follow him no matter what. Because Jesus is a righteous judge. And the third thing Paul wants to point out here in verse 8 is that this reward is available to us. Now, it's, it's helpful for our humility's sake to recognize there are things about the Apostle Paul that are unique. First off, he was an apostle. You're not. I'm not, right? There are 12 of those guys. They're going to they're have their names in the 12 walls in heaven. We're not going to have our names there. He was used by God to write a good portion of the New Testament. We were not, Okay. There are there ways that God used Paul that, we, that was unique to him. There are ways that God wants to use you that are unique to you. But what he's talking about in verse 8, this crown of righteousness, this hope of eternal life, that's not unique to Paul at all, at all. In fact, he says so. Look at verse 8 again. He says, There is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And here's what he says. And not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. It's not just Paul that's going to get this reward. It's all who, to quote verse 8, have loved his appearing. Now, that's an interesting phrase, okay? But it's one I think that we can grasp pretty easily. First off, we need to recognize that God alone is the judge, and there's no fooling him. Okay, in chapter 2, verse 19 of the same letter, if you look at uh, 2 Timothy 2, 19, he says that God's solid foundation stands firm, bearing this inscription, the Lord knows those who are his. Isn't that comforting? That the Lord knows those who are his? God knows those who have put their faith and trust in him. God knows those who love him. God knows those whose desire it is to serve him. And he knows who hasn't, despite what they project out there for people to see. So the way that Paul puts this is fascinating to me. He says, this reward, this crown of righteousness is reserved for all those who have loved his appearing. His appearing, his return hasn't happened yet. And so what is he getting at here? Your translation might read it for all those who longed for his appearing. I don't, I don't think that changes anything. I think to understand what Paul is saying, we need to think about what happens when Jesus does return, because the Bible tells us. And Philippians 2 tells us that his full identity will be known by all, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, every single one. We read later that, that his reign and his kingdom will expand in the book of Revelation, that he will get his due and the praise that he deserves. In 1 Corinthians 15, we're told that he's going to conquer every single one of his enemies until they're all put under his feet, and then he will rule unopposed, and he will get all the glory from this. Now, you know what? We can't rush the end times. We don't have the power to speed up God's plan and timing. 2 Peter 3 says that he's holding back in patience, wanting all to repent. Acts 1, Jesus tells his followers outright, you don't know the dates and times that the Father said. It's not for you to know it. But all those things that were just listed, right, the, the, the identity of Jesus being known, his reign, his kingdom spreading, his, him getting his due and the praise he deserves and getting glory from all that, all of that can be the aim of our lives. You get that, right? The best way to love his appearing is to be used by God to create those very outcomes now. 
We can share who Jesus is with those in our lives and more and more we'll know his full identity. We can expand his reign and kingdom in what we do now as we share our faith, as we disciple others and invest in others, as we become a sending church and become multiplying disciples of Jesus where we take what he's given us and bless many other people with it. In that we can constantly be taking ground for his kingdom. We can expand his praise and help ensure he gets his due. That's why John Piper writes that the aim of missions is not evangelism, it's worship. The more and more people who are reached with the gospel, the more and more worshipers of Jesus there are, and the more and more he gets his rightful due. Don't you see? We can make it the aim of our lives now that Jesus gets the glory in all that we do. This is how his church loves his appearing. This is how we can make much of our God and Savior, and it's the fruit of a life that has no fear, only confidence when standing before the judge of the universe. Now, I get, I get that these are, are big picture, major concepts, and so I don't want to leave you without giving you really specific ways how to respond to this. And so the first is to borrow just from the guy who wrote verse 8 and to say this, run to get the prize. Run to get the prize. Gemma is our second oldest daughter. She's actually pretty fast. Uh, I don't know where in her genetics uh, that she gets this because the Parks and Kilfians are not fast bunches, right? Uh, but Gemma's pretty quick. And so there's one day I was in the backyard doing work, pretty far away from the house. And uh, Gemma came up walking beside me. And then she shouted all of a sudden, I'll beat you to the house and just took off running. So she got a head start, right? Which means Gemma's not only fast, she's an outright cheater, Okay. Um, and so with no warm-up, no warning, no stretching, no leasing the muscles, I dropped every tool I had, and I took off as fast as I could to catch her, and I passed her to let her know her rightful place in the pecking order, right? <laughs> There's going to be a day when all four girls are faster than me. It is not today, all right? <laughs> and I accomplished two things. I let her know where she was, and I hurt myself pretty badly, Okay. And later that day, I was, I was limping around the house. I like, oh, man, I pulled something. And at this point, Corinne is just exasperated with me. And she's like, how do you not think that that would hurt you? Like, just taking off in a full sprint, how did you not think that would hurt you? And so I tried to justify, right? Like, hey, I'm a dad, and my daughter wanted me to play with her, right? She invited me, and I, I got to get down to her level and be a good dad. And, and Corinne looked at me and goes, well, you don't have to go full out and try to win the race. To which I looked at her and was like, What? Like, there's noise coming out of your mouth right now, but the concepts are so foreign to me. I can't even, I don't even know what you're saying, right? This doesn't make any sense. Like, why would you not try to win a race, right? Now, when it comes to racing your daughter, maybe Corinne makes more sense than that concept, right? She's the wisest one there. But when it comes to eternal life, Paul had a similar mindset. This is what he writes to the Corinthian church in chapter 9. He says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? So here's what you do with that. You run in such a way as to get the prize. That's what you do. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Any Greek or Roman athlete that won a race will be given a crown. Most often it was a laurel wreath, or sometimes it would be a garland of oak leaves. But either way, whatever the crown would be, it would literally fade and wither up. It would shrink to nothing and just die. And that was the realization to help Scotty Scheffler calm down last April at the Masters. He said in the press conference after, he said, there's going to be people 40, 50 years from now who, don't even, who won't even know that I won this tournament. And that's totally fine with me. But there's a crown of life. There's a prize available to us in Jesus Christ that will never perish and never fade and never be taken away. 
It's why Jesus says in Matthew 6 that we should store up our treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves can't break into steel because there it is reserved for us. And so how do we do this? How do we run to get the prize, right, that can never be taken away? The Bible's pretty clear on this. The three major things it points out, and the first is the most important. The first is this, that you must believe in Jesus alone. The cold and hard reality is this, that eternal life only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. There is no other way. Because we all owe God a debt due to our sin. We all stand guilty before a holy God because of the things that we have done. And if that sin is not paid for and is not covered and we cannot pay for it ourselves, then we will spend an eternity in hell rightly paying for that sin. But God made a way for that sin to be covered. He sent Jesus to die on the cross, to die in our place. And if you put all your faith and trust in him, you will be saved, you will be redeemed, you'll be forgiven and adopted as his child. In fact, here's how First Peter, uh, here's what First Peter two says of this Jesus. It says in Scripture, it says, "See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone." That's Jesus it's talking about. And here's the promise: the one who trusts in Him will never be put to shame. The one who trusts in Jesus Christ will never be put to shame. And the most important way for you to run your race to get the prize is by putting all your faith and all your trust in Jesus and in Jesus alone to save you. There is no other way. Now, once that's in place, the scriptures point out for us two other ways that we can run this race well. To borrow Paul's phrase, to run in such a way as to get the prize. And the first we see in Hebrews 12. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And here's the phrase. And let us run with perseverance. Same idea. Let us run with endurance. The race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. James 1 puts it this way. Blessed. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Same exact thing we see in 2 Timothy 4. So once we have that belief in Jesus alone in place, the next way to run our race well is to do it with patient endurance. Listen, life is hard, and I'm going to be honest with you, serving Jesus makes it harder. I hope you didn't think that serving Jesus is going to make your life easier. Serving Jesus makes your life harder. I can tell you something that's become abundantly clear in my own life is that ministry would be so much easier if you didn't try to follow God's leading. So much easier. If you, if you follow God's design as he's laid out for church and his word, which calls for development, it calls for discipleship, it calls for multiplication, it calls for sending, all while trying to preserve unity in one place, that is so much more difficult than just trying to put on good services, give people what they want, and keep them happy. It's so much more exhausting. But we don't have that option. We're called to the harder stuff. We're commanded to do the more difficult road, which is why the calls in scriptures are repeatedly to endurance and perseverance. Because there's an eternity coming in which you can rest. And there's going to be no more hurdles in your way. But here, in this life, your sinful nature is going to fight you every single day. Your failing body will fight you. Your weaknesses will fight you. People will oppose you. Trials and suffering and health scares will come. Temptation will lurk around every single corner. Temptations will seize you and distractions will lure you. But none of those things, listen to me, none of those things carry within the crown of life. And so we endure. And so what is it 
that you know God has asked you to do and is getting really, really, really hard and you're tempted to throw in the towel? What is it that you just need to stay at it? To endure that cost, to endure that long, hard road of patient suffering, knowing our king is going to make it all worth it. We run our race well by believing in Jesus alone, by having impatient endurance. And then, this has been the message of 2 Timothy 4, we run it well with faithful obedience. This is what Paul has been trying to pour into Timothy. Do your job, Timothy. When everyone around you deserts you, when everyone around you opposes you, when everybody wants to hear what their itching ears wants to hear, when everybody wants to turn away from truth and turn aside to miss, when everything gets difficult, it doesn't matter. Do what God told you to do. And in these last few verses, Paul says, I have. I fought the good fight. I finished my race. I kept the faith. And because of that, there's a crown. There is in store for me a crown of righteousness. We see similar encouragement in 1 Peter 5, where Peter is writing to fellow elders of churches. And he says, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but instead eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, here's the promise again, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Now, maybe you're an elder, maybe you're not. Most of you aren't. But there's someone that God has put under your care. There's someone that God has given you influence over. There are good works that he's created just for you and set aside for you. And we are all stewards of what God has given us. And we run to get the prize when we take what God has entrusted to us and we live in faithful obedience to him. We run to get the prize when we simply do what he's told us to do. Whether people are cheering us on or not, whether people are opposing us or not, whether it's easy or not, we simply do what he's told us to do. We run to get the prize by believing in Jesus alone. We run to get the prize with patient endurance, and we run to get the prize with faithful obedience. And the second encouragement to you this morning is this, is to make Jesus' glory the aim of your life. This is how we love his appearing. It's by genuinely loving him. And I'm not talking about some romantic Hallmark movie kind of love. This is the love that wants to see Jesus get every single thing he deserves. It's the love that wants to see his kingdom expand. It's a love that wants to see his reign be recognized. It's a, one, a love that wants to see his identity be realized by all. It's a love that wants to see his praise be multiplied so that he can get the honor and glory and the worthiness that he deserves. And this is exactly why Paul did what he did. It's why he shared it's why he traveled. It's why he served. It's why he endured. It's why he gave and suffered and eventually died. It's why he was dragged out of a city, stoned and left for dead, and then got up and walked right back into the city. It's why he kept getting on boats despite barely surviving three shipwrecks. It's why he walked into a synagogue and shared the hope of Jesus and immediately faced persecution and then walked in the next synagogue and without hesitation did it again. It's why he kept preaching despite being imprisoned over and over again, because the glory of Jesus Christ was the aim of his life. Not self-preservation, not personal experience, not, not comfort and ease and happiness. The, the glory of Jesus was the aim of his life. And you are living for someone's glory today. For most of us, it's our own. For some of us, it might be our kids, but for most of us, it's our own. But living for Jesus' glory 
doesn't need to involve changing careers. It doesn't need to involve transforming the circumstances of our life. It needs to change how we do the things we do, why we do the things we do, and yes, some of the things we do. To live for the glory of Jesus means that we want to exalt him, we want to make much of him, we want to make him famous and lead others to see how worthy he is. To live for the glory of Jesus is to set aside all of my understanding and trust him completely. There is no better way to live life than that. And there's no getting around this reality this morning. Your life will end and you will stand before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. There's no question about that. The only question that remains is this. that is there a crown of life? Is there a crown of righteousness that is reserved for you? And are you running your race in such a way as to get the prize? And the time to ask that question is now, not later. And if you need to make some course corrections, like believe in Jesus for the first time or pursue baptism, or you need to live in deeper obedience to him or, or live for his glory more than your own, or you need to have an adjustment of priorities or repent of some things, now is the time to make those corrections, not later. You confess those things to the Lord and be washed anew in his immense grace, and you commit to adjusting whatever he is identifying right now. Because i got to be honest with you, for the life of me, I don't know why anyone is would not want the confidence that Paul writes with here. Why would you not want that assurance? Why would you not want the the certainty to say, there is reserved for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day? It's available to us in Jesus if we receive it by faith and respond accordingly. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful for the example we have in your word of Paul's immense confidence as he looked ahead to the judgment seat of Christ. Lord, he did not fear your wrath because he had trusted in you. He did not fear retribution for sins because you had already covered it and he had put his faith in that. Instead, what he saw ahead was a crown of righteousness that was being reserved and kept for him. And Lord, this is what we want. This is our prayer for each and every person in this room. God, first, if there's anyone within the sound of my voice who's not yet trusted you for the forgiveness of their sins and the gift of eternal life, would they realize that they owe you a tremendous debt this morning, that the greatest threat and danger in their life is their own sin because it will condemn them to hell forever if it's not paid for it. Would they be moved and compelled by the grace and love of Jesus who went to their place on the cross, who suffered and died in torment for them so that they could have life and life eternal? And in their seat right now, would they put all their faith and all their trust in him? And God, for the rest of us, Will we run our race with patient endurance and faithful obedience to the soul who's just tired today? who is weary, who's beaten down, who doesn't know how many more hills he can run up or she can run up, who knows that there's something that you've laid before them to do, but it's just a question whether they have the endurance to do it. Would you strengthen them? Would you renew them, God? Would you give them what they need to, to be faithful to you today? And when they wake up tomorrow, would you give them what they need to be faithful to you tomorrow? And then, Lord, in the realm of faithful obedience, is there anything in our lives that is displeasing to you? Any way that we have accepted your grace, accepted your mercy, but then said, no, this, this area, I'm going to still live for me and, and outside of your commands. Would you reveal those to us now? 
And may we have the wisdom and wherewithal to just simply obey, to run our race in faithful obedience, doing what you have told us to do. Would you do this, Lord, not for our sake, not for our glory, not for our gain, but for the glory and praise of Jesus Christ. And we ask this in his powerful name. Amen. Before we dismiss you, before we close our service today, we're going to give you some time just to pray with the Lord, just to wrestle with him on maybe some things he put on your heart this morning, ways that he's asking you to respond. There's some guidance on the screen if you need it, but this is just a couple moments for you to spend with him before you head right back out into all the distractions and busyness of life. Do not miss this opportunity to connect with your Savior.